As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The VanCast is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices drop right before the game starts, and because GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. Now, the Vancouver Canucks out on the road for a six-game road trip, so you don't have to worry about tickets at Rogers Arena, but if you've taken a look at the schedule in December, 12 of 15 games are at home for the Vancouver Canucks, and of course Christmas coming right around the corner so maybe you want to snap up some tickets or make them a great Christmas gift whatever the case check out game time the app is simple quick and easy to navigate download the game time app in Google Play or the App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off Hey, we always like to have fun here on the VanCast. This is a great project, The Athletic, reviewing the last decade from the year 2010 to 2020. Of course, uh, six weeks away from the start of a new decade. And uh, we've been asked to look back at the decade that was for the Vancouver Canucks, and an eventful one, certainly, when you think where they were at the start of this, the, the decade of the teens. Uh, of course, the Olympics as well in Vancouver, so that sort of plays into all of it. But, uh, you know, when you think of, for at least for me, when I think of the last decade for the Vancouver Canucks, it's coming up a game short against Boston and really still sort of feeling the fallout from there. And I know as you and I, Drancer, were sort of talking about what we would talk about on a podcast like this, uh, and this one hits close to home for you. I mean, Roberto Luongo at the start of the decade, Roberto Luongo at the end of the decade. Yeah, I think if there was one sort of surprise from how this decade's played out, it's that the decade actually ended after Roberto Luongo's contract, right? That's sort of the biggest surprise for me when I when I think about the decade that was for Vancouver. But, you know, the Olympics is such an interesting sort of flashpoint to sort of bring up because... This decade sort of was the best of times and the worst of times for Vancouver hockey. And when you consider that game, you know, early 2010, right, that winter of 2010 and the atmosphere in the streets and, you know, Ryan Kessler literally being run out of town because he was, you know, having fun taking some shots at the Canadian team. And, and you know, I, I remember 
debating with people on the streets of Vancouver, you know, in my Canadian Olympic garb, uh, as people were like, he hates Canada, get him out of here. You know, hilariously, he'd, he'd go on to win the Selkie the very next NHL season. But when you consider the stakes around that game, uh, that final sort of game, uh, the gold medal game, Canada-US, Ryan Miller versus Roberto Luongo, right? The Canucks' implications are endless. And, you know, when the sort of unique pressures that were on that team, and, you know, since then, right, Babcock and, and Iserman have essentially been alchemists, right? They make gold out of nothing. And, you know, Canada's won every best-on-best best hockey tournament since the, they won that gold medal game with the Iggy, Iggy, Iggy goal. But, you know, from the perspective of those of us watching the game, I think, A, Canada had already lost to the United States in that tournament. B, you know, the memories of Turin were not so far afield. Um, C, this was sort of the first best-on-best tournament that had been hosted on Canadian soil since, what, the 96 World Cup of Hockey? I mean, you know, losing on home soil would have been a, a really tough thing for Canadian hockey fans, I think. So there was unique pressures around the team going into that game. Um, and the way that it played out with, you know, the... Zach Parise game time goal and then the Crosby overtime winner, uh, you know, and then the echoes to that game seven against the Blackhawks in 2011, right? Again, unique pressures. I mean, an entire Canucks roster going into this game thinking if we don't win tonight, they are blowing the team up. Everyone is fired or traded. Uh, and that they, every, to a man, every Canucks skater who played that game looks back and believes that if they had not won, they would not have been together as a group uh, going forward and, and probably would not have the coach and, and the GM and on and on. So, you know, that game also tied late by Jonathan Taves, right? Um, <laughs> overtime winner, couldn't have played out any differently, uh, sort of seared into the memories. But when I sort of think back to the, the opening years of the decade, those two games really stand out to me as these high-pressure performances that played out in, in pretty similar fashion with Luongo kind of winning both and the reaction on the streets and people partying and, um, you know, how the city celebrated hockey at the opening of this decade on an almost regular basis. Like, it felt like something Vancouver just did. The streets of Granville would get lined by revelers. Um, and, and that's kind of what stands out to me as, like, the high point for hockey, not just like the history of this decade, but the history of the sport in the city of Vancouver, I think it hit its high point in the opening years of this decade. I'll tell you my story, then I'll get yours. But, you know, I think back to the gold medal game, and we weren't radio rights holders. I was working at 1040 at the time. And I had been able to get to a handful of events, but I didn't go to any of the men's hockey. I did go to the women's gold medal game, which was incredible, and it was amazing to watch them win. But for the men's gold medal game, I was on location. I was doing radio cut-ins at Granville Island Brewery. And so the place was packed, and people were there watching. But our radio setup was out the door and down the hall. So I would have to go three times an hour to go on the air uh, you know, just kind of set the stage of what was happening and all these people are having fun, but I couldn't see a TV. So while the game's going on, I'd have to run down the hall and I'd have to get there a few minutes ahead of my actual, like, on-air time. So there were these large gaps in, you know, 
the action that like I just didn't see. And this was like here, you know, a gold medal game, Canada, the U.S. Yeah. in my home city, and I couldn't watch parts <laughs> of it. And then fortunately, I was able to see uh, Sid the Kid score uh, the goal that mattered the most, obviously. And then was uh, I went to the closing ceremonies later on that night as well. So it's just kind of funny when I think back to you know where I was in that moment. Yeah, I shared the golden goal moment with uh, a bunch of people that uh, were knee-deep into it uh, at a brewery and having some fun. Where, where did you watch the game? Uh, you know what? I remember I was um, in Vancouver, and I was living in Toronto at the time, but I uh, came home to Vancouver for the last week of the games, and I remember seeing some ski jumping. I saw a Finland-Sweden men's hockey game. Like I had sort of a weird smattering of tickets, as I think most Vancouverites sort of did. Anyway, we, um, I was out for a walk with my grandmother two days before. And again, I was really nervous, right? Like I was a pretty anxious kind of type of hockey fan at the time. And I was out with my grandmother the, uh, two, maybe a day or two before. And we sat down on a bench because, you know, my grandmother was pretty old by this time. And, and we had a view of a TV. And as we sat down on that bench, the Canada won two gold medals in quick succession. I don't remember exactly what they were. Uh, but I decided that my grandmother was was good luck, and so we should watch the game together. And uh, so um, my my grandmother shows up, you know, two hours before the game, and she's brought a twenty four pack of beer. Right? I think she was just. I don't think she expected her twenty two year old or uh, grandson to be like, let's watch the gold medal game together. So I think she was appreciative, right? So she shows up and she's like, I'm ready. And she had 24 beers. And I was like, let's go, grandma. So me and my grandma <laughs> sat down on the couch. And I, uh, I I like knew that if they won, I'd go and meet all my friends who were at the Vogue Theater uh, downtown to celebrate, right? So um, but I, I'm glad I did that. Obviously, an excellent memory. My, my grandmother's no longer with with us, but um, something I remember well. And uh, I just remember uh, me and my grandma cracking some Canadians and uh, and taking in the game. Uh, does Granny break down the games like uh, <laughs> like you do? No, no. She was uh, she was definitely not on the uh, Corsi four train. Uh, I, as I, as I recall, uh, my grandmother was a big Luongo skeptic, which of course I never was. So she was like, "Oh, I don't know about that goaltender," <laughs> and uh, and uh, that was uh, you know that was sort of the main source of our argument <laughs> over the course of the game. Well, Lou got the last laugh then. Yeah. Obviously, as we move on to twenty eleven, the Canucks didn't get it right, but. I, what a remarkable run, and it did. Like It really was just an extension of the feeling in that city uh, from 2010 and just a coming together and a rallying point. And, you know, the difference, I think, well, there were a couple, but one was, you know, the Olympics were February, although it was a really mild February, as I recall. In fact, mm, they had the truck in the snow and stuff yeah. in Cyprus. Um, but there were, it was like short sleeve days in February. Obviously, the Stanley Cup final you know, you're playing every other night from mid-April to mid-June. And so by the time uh, Game 7 rolled around, June 15th, that's a date that is seared in a lot of people's memory bank. But, you know, just the visuals visuals of the hundreds or 100,000 people lining Georgia Street and those viewing parties, and we know how it ultimately ended there. But, uh, you know, it's just it's such a, a galvanizing thing for the city. And as you talked about, the build-up and you know, just the drama of playing the same team three years in a row with the Blackhawks and having to clear that hurdle 
and Alex Burroughs is going to be celebrated here on December 3rd and taking his rightful spot in the Ring of Honor, you know, slay the dragon. If he doesn't slay the dragon, as you said, who knows what the organization looks like today, but we probably wouldn't recognize it compared to uh, what it was then. Um, and I'll just, you know, as much as the Burroughs goal sticks out for me, it was the Burroughs pen. Like, I think people forget how eventful the night was for Alex Burroughs in a low-scoring hockey game, but he opened the scoring. He had a penalty shot. Mm-hmm. He took a penalty in overtime. Yep. And it's funny, like, that's, you know, the, the fandom has kind of been crushed out of me, but just doing what I do. I mean, it's impossible. It was impossible not to recognize the storylines that were at play and what was at stake for everybody. And I just remember sort of the nervous energy in the building when Burroughs took the penalty in overtime and the Blackhawks, you know, had the power play and a chance to ultimately stick the dagger in. And we know about the Patrick Sharp chance. That was probably the, the best scoring chance there, but it is funny. Like, I mean, rightfully so, uh, slay the dragon, but damn, like a lot went on in and around Alex Burroughs that entire night. Well, and add to it the fact that his wife had given birth the night before, right? So he was a it was his first day as a new dad, and he had the neutral zone turnover that led to the Jonathan Tave shorthanded goal, right? So I mean, really, just about as eventful at 24 hours as it gets. And look, athletic readers, stay tuned over the next two weeks in the lead up to Alex Burroughs's. Uh, you know, being inducted into the Ring of Honor. Uh, we'll obviously have have a variety of things uh, covering that. And so, I, you know, I've had an opportunity in recent sort of days to talk to a variety of the Canucks players who were on that team and a variety of the Blackhawks players who were on that team. And, you know, just some sort of high-level highlights from those conversations. One is uh, Jonathan Taves sort of thinking about the... Blackhawks and the Canucks meeting three consecutive times in the playoffs, right? And he said, he said to me, this will, this is sort of a quote that'll stick with me for a long time. But he said, I grew up, and you know, I loved watching playoff hockey. But the games I definitely didn't miss were Red Wings, Colorado Avalanche. Those were the games that I knew I had to see. And he said, when I think back to playing the Canucks those three times and that core of players and the dislike and some of the brawls we had in the regular season and on and on, uh, you know, he says, I hope that, you know, there's some kids who've come up and sort of looked at that in the same way because that's how it felt like to play within it. Um, that's sort of one one key sort of quote that stood out to me. Another is from, you know, when I was speaking with sort of Bieksa about it and the feeling that those penalty killers had knowing that Burr was in the box. They all sort of remember that Burr was in the box and just how terrible they knew he felt. Um, and and the reaction from both benches when that sharp chance happens in overtime, right? And again, I've talked to a bunch of people, a bunch of people were on the ice for it, a bunch of people were on the bench for it, and certainly everyone who was on the benches anyway was convinced the moment Taves made that pass over Bieksa that it was a goal, right? Everyone, the the Blackhawks players say they stood up and sat back down disappointed. The Canucks players, you know, say they were losing their minds. Darkest moment, darker than when Taves scored the shorty. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, that game is, uh, that game and that the legacy of those Blackhawks-Canucks series, I mean, those are, uh, you know, memories that I think will shape a whole generation of Canucks fans. And, you know, 
as much as that the riot and, and we should spend some time talking about it because you know that civic catastrophe uh, attached directly to a memory of you know a Canucks game is something that I think the brands had to overcome in this market in the decades since and in a lot of ways in, in the minds of casuals in the minds of uh, you know hardcore fans too but when you think about the that run and all the moments that Granville Street filled right when you think about how Granville Street celebrated after that Blackhawks victory in 2011. When you think about how they celebrated again following the stanchion goal, the Kevin Bieksa stanchion goal in San Jose, um, you know, it's really too bad that this sort of two and a half month stretch, the celebration of hockey locally, uh, you know, ends up getting tarred fairly by, you know, the events following the Game 7 loss because up until then, the atmosphere around the city, uh, you know, had been something unique, something celebratory, something positive. And, uh, you know, it's just too bad that that kind of dark underbelly took over in that in that moment following the loss to the Bruins. Yeah, I mean, when I think of sort of the bizarre moments in my broadcasting career, post-game Game 7 absolutely is at the top being in the Vancouver Canucks locker room there were only a handful of players that were ready to face the media so this crush of media in the Canucks locker room and what's on TV but the city burning as we're still inside the building and you know their dreams of a Stanley Cup have been ripped away the Bruins are celebrating 40 feet down the hallway you can hear it and we're in this room like I remember talking to Chris Higgins and like he just didn't have words like you know, you're trying to conduct an interview with a guy who's come that close to winning the Stanley Cup and fallen short and he like he just he didn't have words and like I totally understood where he was coming from but you know our job obviously is to try to get some sort of reaction and uh, so that one stands out but sort of the whole overarching memory is being in the Francesco Aquilini's in the room uh, there were a handful of other players, and we're all watching on TV, and it's, you know, police cars being flipped over and set on fire. Uh, just such a bizarre set of circumstances, obviously, to be there in that moment. And then, you know, my, and it is one of the most memorable nights, probably the most memorable night of my career, was doing the post-game show. And I had done this, you know, post-game show uh, that had gone into the wee hours of the night, you know, playoff game night, after every game. Well, I mean, they played, I think, 25 games that spring. So, uh, you know, this one came on after the post-game show. I was at the rink in the locker room. I made my way back to the station, and as I'm driving through the streets, I mean, I'm aware of what's going on, and I'm a little leery of, you know, anybody on any street corner, and I'm seeing, like, the additional police troops being brought in and get back to the station, and for the first two or three hours, the phone boards were jammed and people were just beside themselves, not because the Canucks had lost, but because the city was being turned upside down and it was a repeat of 94 and so many of these people had lived it already and couldn't believe that as a city, like we were right back to where we had been. And then it was about two or three in the morning when 
things had died down downtown. You know, the police had things under control. At that point, then people wanted to talk hockey again, and I hosted a post-game show that went until 6 in the morning when Scott Rintoul and Ray Ferraro, who were the morning show at that time, they rolled in, and I passed the baton to them. But uh, to do an all-nighter like that with that much going on, uh, certainly, I mean, the memories are still so fresh in my mind. Here we are almost a decade later. But uh, just crazy to think that, you know, that was how ultimately that night was, was going to play out. The, I think we should indulge just a little bit of about the of, of this, but that was the eighteen and one New England Patriots of hockey, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about a team that was second in pa- penalty killing percentage by point one percent away from leading <laughs> the league in every relevant team category, right? The best offense, the best defense, the best save percentage, uh, aside from Tim Thomas. The, the best power play, the best penalty kill. They entered the playoffs with, you know, just a ridiculous. I mean, Keith Ballard was making $4.2 million and couldn't crack the lineup. Chris Tanev was the best rookie defenseman in the American League that season, and he couldn't crack the lineup. They were eight deep on D. You, you had to go nine deep on D before you got to Andrew Alberts, who'd played 200 games in his NHL career and was like at least credible bottom pair depth. Um, you know, up front, at least they passed the trade deadline with, you know, this third line of Manny Malhotra, Rafi Torres, and Yannick Hansen, right? And Yannick Hansen had some top-of-the-roster offensive skills and, and was a really useful defensive player. Rafi Torres was terrifying and scored goals at a first-line rate at 5-on-5 five five over the course of his career pretty consistently. And Manny Malhotra was this sort of perfect defensive center, uh, just uh, unbelievable, and at the absolute top of his game. And we all know what happened in Colorado uh, that sort of sort of tore that line asunder. But they added Chris Higgins, they added Maxim Lapierre on at the at the trade deadline. And I think the plan was to have Lapierre, Higgins, and Jeff Tambellini as your fourth line, right? Obviously, the best laid plans. Mikhail Samuelson doesn't really make it out of the first round. Uh, Chris Higgins ends up on the second line. Manny Malhotra, obviously the the bounce, you know they start they they play that Blackhawk series with Mason Raymond at center for the most part. It's not until they play Nashville that Maxim Lapierre becomes the third line center for the Canucks, but that's sort of where he finished the playoff run, and you know you end up with this sort of team that as as it goes along uh, and as they sort of win games they get banged up and and banged up and end up sort of facing this Bruins team in a situation where they, you know, call Nolan Baumgartner off, up off the beach, you know, where he's with his family. Um, just because they, and they thought he, <clears throat> he sort of got to the rink for game seven and thought he might play, right? Like that, they really had gotten to that point where they weren't even sure Bieksa would play. And Baumgartner, what, you know, shows up at the rink on game seven thinking, oh God, this might be the last game of my career and I might be playing for the cup. So, you know, uh, Alex Edler uh, gets hurt in that San Jose series. Christian Erhoff gets hurt in that San Jose series. BX's hands all mangled to the point where he barely played in Game 7. We all know what happened with Aaron Rome. Um, Ryan Kessler screwed up his groin um, or groin area, groin or hip, at the tail end of that. It was actually in the first period of the Game 5 in San Jose. 
And all of a sudden, this team, this formidable juggernaut, this team built with nine deep on the defense core and, you know, four scoring lines that added Chris Higgins as a luxury item at the deadline, um, you know, just because they could barely make it fit. And, they, you know, they ended, they ended the final day, they ended the trade deadline having acquired Chris Higgins, and they had something like $85 in daily cap space, right, with with you know, Alex Edler having sort of this elective back surgery and going on LTIR, and he wouldn't be back to the playoffs, but they kind of managed it. I mean, best laid plans, everything you could do to insulate yourself from bad luck, and everything sort of started to fall apart in that last two and a half weeks, and still eight goals in seven games against the Bruins. You know, their goaltender only gives them three quality starts in the Stanley Cup final. They still get to game seven. And that's sort of where they they got gassed uh, by a Bruins team that that won four nothing and ended up being the second club in NHL history to raise the Stanley Cup on Vancouver ice. Um, of course, none of those teams have ever been the Canucks. Yeah, and you think of the road to get there. I mean, Kessler in that Nashville series was just so off the charts. It was incredible to see a guy. And you think about that Predators defense at that point, and he saw the matchups and it just didn't matter, just blew right through uh, any stop sign that the Preds tried to put up for him. And then you get to San Jose, and it was the power play. And I think Henrik had 12 points in five (laughs) games. Still to this day, uh, Henrik authored probably my favorite goal ever scored by a Vancouver Canucks, and and it was the one where Henrik feathered the pass on the two-on-one through the legs of Antti Niemi to Burroughs on the doorstep. I, I find myself in quiet moments just digging that up on YouTube and watching it over and over again. It's so insane, just the creativity and the patience. and ev- It was everything Henrik Sedin was wrapped up in one highlight. It was just it's insane. I had a chance to talk to Henrik about that last week. Uh, I actually watched the highlight with him, and... You know, this is partly because they're the most humble guys ever, right? But, um, you know, I'm like, what are you thinking here? What are you thinking there? What's going on, right? Like, really sort of getting down into it. And he's like, oh, I screwed that up. (laughs) And I'm like, what? That's the coolest highlight of your career. And he goes, yeah, see, I faked the shot. He doesn't bite. Niemi does a good job. Boyle's actually in position. Look, Boyle doesn't run into his goaltender. He's in position. Um, He's like, I'm looking at my options, and I don't have any. And he's like, and I'm going too far, and I'm going too far, and I've now lost my shot, and there's really not much I can do. And he's like, at this point, I'm like, oh, this is going to be one of the most embarrassing moments of my career. My last option is to go to the backhand and try to feather this five hole. And he goes, and and I'm just lucky Burr's smart enough to have stopped at the net. Like He's like, I watch that highlight, and I know people like it. People bring it up to me, and he's like, I'm cringing that entire sequence i'm like i've screwed this up i've screwed this up oh no i'm too far in oh no oh god <laughs> and then it comes off which was just amazing i i couldn't believe that he remembered it that way because to all of us it was like henrik Sedin, peak of his powers right feathering a pass through a goalie unreal that's a great story and that that's funny and I'm, i guess i'm not surprised to hear him sort of recount it that way but just to, to watch a guy on a two-on-one. <laughs> and you're right, Dan Boyle plays it perfectly, and Henrik still found a way uh, to wave the magic wand and, and slip that puck through the legs of Antti Niemi and Burroughs there on the doorstep. And then, yeah, I mean, so many 
twists and turns in the Stanley Cup final itself. And, you know, again, everybody knows how it ended, and the Canucks are still searching here as they celebrate 50 years in the NHL. Uh, the one thing they don't have is uh, their hands on the Stanley Cup. And then the following year, you know, a lot of things turned with Duncan Keith's elbow on Daniel Sedin. And, you know, that was kind of the beginning of the end. And against, you know, they look, another President's Trophy, and as Canuck luck would have it, they just run into the best eighth seed ever in the history of hockey in the Los Angeles Kings. Yeah, having run into the second best eighth seed ever in the Chicago Blackhawks Hawks the year before, right? A Blackhawks team that started Cristobal Huey for 60 games, right? After losing Niemi to San Jose, right? And then Corey Crawford sort of finds his spot and he ends up being sort of a guy who power a powers them into the playoffs but b becomes sort of a multiple stanley cup winner and a star in his own right um they just found him late in that year but that was a really formidable eighth seed too and and that's just classic canucks luck and and one reason why when you hear teams on in the eastern conference columbus or toronto sort of bemoaning the playoff format right oh it's so unfair it's it's always been unfair you've always had teams winning the president's trophy and getting a tough eighth seed like that's always happened um and it always will happen there's no playoff format you can devise that'll avoid it and the two-time canucks uh president's trophy winning teams are proof putting of that because they ran into that king's club didn't have daniel sedin for the first few games and you know, that Kings team overwhelmed them, especially with that sort of Williams-Brown-Kopitar line that had only played together for five, six games going into that playoffs, steamrolled not just the Canucks, but the entire league on their way to a Stanley Cup victory that was, I think they lost three games the whole way. No, they lost four because they lost two to the Rangers, but they only lost two games on their way to the cup final itself. The Canucks took one of those games from them uh, when Daniel Sedin got back into the lineup, but just a a juggernaut club. And, um, you know, you go into the next year and and you have the lockout shortened season. You have Kessler injuries. You have, you know, Jordan Schrader playing third line minutes and a variety of sort of tough circumstances for the club that they're just kind of holding the fort through. ends up in a sweep to the San Jose Sharks. Uh, The Canucks sort of, again, kind of vacillating between two goaltenders, maybe playing Corey Schneider a little bit before he was ready um, for Game 3 after dropping, you know, (laughs) the Game 2 overtime um, in Vancouver with Rafi Torres scoring the winning goal on a two-on-one. And, you know, following that series, you have wholesale changes behind the bench, and that brings us to... Torts. <laughs> torts, yes. I mean, we could have done an entire podcast on Torts' one season behind the bench. Uh, like, I found the guy wildly engaging. I did. Like, to be there on a daily basis, uh, I got along with him. Um, you know, I mean, there were, he had a couple of Torts moments and rebuttals to a few of the questions, but I think anybody that's spent time in his company would say that. But for the most part, I got along with him reasonably well. I, I thought it was funny last year out on the road Columbus was in Florida when the Canucks were in Florida and three teams in the building at the same time and I passed Torts in the hallway and I got one of those looks like he knew he recognized me but he wasn't sure from where so I kind of got the nod uh but that was it that was uh, all I, I got from him in that moment but again like going back to his time 
you know, and the reputation and everything else. I mean, I, we saw it, and ultimately it was the mighty storm, the Flames locker room. I mean, he'll never live that one down. And uh, <laughs> you knew then that he wasn't going to survive uh, his one season as head coach of the Vancouver Canucks. But, uh, you know, I, again, I, I think back to Torts, I guess the things that jump out for me were, you know, we're watching Bo Horvat right now play 26, 27 minutes a night, and that was a regular thing for certainly Ryan Kessler and pushing the twins and just trying to, you know, I mean, the, the whole philosophy was trying to squeeze whatever was left out of that aging group, and ultimately it uh, blew up in his face and, and their face. Yeah, and, you know, the, I, I sort of remember that season as just a Canucks team that played, that had played such appealing hockey sort of, mucking it up and you know playing five guys sort of in front of the net I, I remember dubbing it meat wagon hockey right and um it, it was tough to watch and obviously it didn't work out well for anybody and um you know I think Torts probably just wasn't ready obviously he's done a much better job with a more malleable younger group of players in Columbus they've sort of bought in and you know I think they've punched above their weight both when they had a sort of better roster and and this season too I think they're a tough opponent to face night in night out and you know he deserves some credit I mean clearly the guys got some talent Uh, it just didn't work out for him in Vancouver I think it was too soon after the New York job I think the group was maybe a little too veteran a little too settled for him and uh, but you know uh, wild cataclysm of of events and, and sort of culminating obviously in the um, you know, because we've somehow managed to get through this without the 18 months of Luongo watch, right? But that all came to a head when John Tortorella made the sort of decision to start Eddie Lack in the Winter Classic or Heritage. the Heritage Classic, excuse me, um, the Heritage Classic at BC Place, uh, which, you know, ended up facilitating the Luongo trade and, um, you know, sort of the end of an era in in a lot of ways because following that season Luongo was gone so the Canucks ended up bringing Trevor Linden back Mike Gillis was fired and you know that's sort of the end right there of a of a golden era for Canucks hockey in the sort of high point of um of the decade as we've been breaking it down yeah and we don't have to spend too much time on the recent events because we've all lived through them here but you're right. I mean, that was certainly a demarcation point in the decade. The crowd chanting, you know, fire Gillis and the ownership listening and then Mike going and then Tortorella going and then Trevor Linden coming back. And we know that that didn't work out for, for Trevor necessarily. Although in that moment, you can understand why the Aquilinis wanted Trevor Linden to sort of be this calming presence and, you know, the face of the, the group moving forward. And, you know, really from that point on that leads us to where we are here and that is a team that's trying to find its way again and looks like it's got a lot of solid component parts but you look around the national hockey league and you look at the truly elite teams and i think it shows just how much work is left to be done for the vancouver canucks but uh, it's going to be fun here to continue to watch the development of elias Pettersson and quinn hughes in his first full season and besser and horvat and you know what's to come. I mean, they've got some prospects in the in the system now that they haven't had for a while, especially because that core four group all bypassed Utica. But you know, let's see where it takes the Vancouver Canucks. But certainly, when you think of the past ten years, don't think there's much doubt that we were all fortunate to watch 
the best team in franchise history. We're celebrating 50 years. The start of this decade absolutely represented the best of the Vancouver Canucks. To this point, again, they don't have a Stanley Cup, so they're hoping that the best is still to come. But, you know, I think there are moments when maybe we all just take for granted how good those uh, 09, 10, 11, 12 teams really were. They were unbelievable. And, you know, the Twins just at the absolute apex of their powers. You know, they were able to play with Burroughs, but they were also able to play with Mikhail Samuelson. And they switched sort of interchangeably and gave that, those lines sort of different looks. And both guys scored 30 goals or thereabouts. You know, Ryan Kessler was a 40-goal scorer. And that's sort of not even counting Daniel Sedin, who was, you know, the best player in hockey in that 10-11 year. Just an absolute dynamo on the power play and his shot was working for him um, you know the Bieksa Hamhuis pair and, and everything I mean that goaltending I mean Luongo and Corey Schneider as a backup and and obviously we you know Corey Schneider maybe hasn't hit the highs that were expected but for that five-year stretch starting that season on through about 2016 I mean he was a top two or three goaltender in the sport um, you know as Luongo was for the decade prior and, and and through that same stretch so I mean just an absolutely loaded team uh, great to watch played played exciting hockey grinded out some wins uh, you know we'll never see their like again and and it's you know remains baffling in, in some ways that they weren't able to to win a Stanley Cup but that's why hockey's so great it's so unpredictable and why the Stanley Cup is the most difficult trophy in all of pro sports to win well, pretty magical decade, really, when you think it started with an Olympic championship in Vancouver, as we said, a Stanley Cup final and just the Stanley Cup run itself and all sorts of drama that we've all lived through. And in some ways, it's kind of cool that we will start the 20s with 22 and 33 hanging from the rafters at Rogers Arena. The Twins will have not just their night, but they'll have their week in February. It's been a fun trip down memory lane as uh, we look back at the decade that was. Uh, for Drancers, J. Pat, thanks so much for listening to another VanCast, a special edition of the VanCast here on The Athletic and theathletic.com. <laughs>